Jesus is supposed to produce humility that produces unity. Um, and that was a problem for them. Um, which makes this one of the interesting, encouraging points about the book of 1 Corinthians. The, the book of 1 Corinthians basically demonstrates that um, Christian faith is fairly easy to completely misapply. And that if you misapply Christian faith, like you don't really get how it works, um, you don't actually get less of what it's supposed to produce. You actually get the opposite of what it's supposed to produce. It's really important to understand. And the reason why that's supposed to be encouraging is that if you're, you're, you've believed in Jesus and you know what it's supposed to produce is humility, but you just see yourself fighting with pride all the time, all the more, and, and, or, you know what I mean? It's just not—it seems to be producing the opposite of what's supposed to. The problem may not be that you believe in Jesus. The problem may very well be that there's an issue in how we're understanding and applying the good news about Jesus. Because these people in the, in the book of Corinth were believers. They believed in Jesus. Paul referred to them as brothers, meaning brothers in the faith, right? And yet, what their faith was producing, he's arguing, is basically the opposite of what the gospel is supposed to produce. Faith in Jesus is supposed to produce a sense of confidence towards the non-believing culture, and yet a sense of unifying humility inside the church, right? It's, it should increase our resistance to being assimilated by the world that is not conscious of Jesus' kingship, right? And it should produce a diminishing of factions among ourselves, right? That is, um, it should give us strength to resist being assimilated or overwhelmed by what the Bible calls the world. Um, what the Bible refers to as the world, or you hear Christians say, you know, the world, you shouldn't be like the world. What that means basically is the surrounding culture that is not conscious that Jesus is Lord and King. It doesn't mean everything they believe is wrong and that we should be different from them in every possible way. It just means that when you're not conscious that Jesus is Lord and King, you think a certain, a different way. You act a different way. You value different things. And there, therefore, is a, there's a parting of company that happens with the world that isn't conscious that Jesus is Lord for whatever reason. And, and yet, um, we're supposed to get a humility from the gospel that allows for cooperation in the church and also being helpful and neighborly in the, in the community rather than being, you know, adversarial. Um, but that's really not that all because it's, if, if that is going awry, it's not just that we have these bad relationships and we have factionalism and favoritism in the church, but what's, what's really worse than that is we lose those things socially because we don't have something personally. There's something personally that's gone wrong, and there's something personally that we're supposed to be able to receive and enjoy that isn't there. And that's why we're having all these other issues, right? And that is because the message of the cross, the way Paul puts it in, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, is supposed to produce a joy-filling humility. That there's supposed to be humility, but there's supposed to be joy. And it's supposed to produce a happy self-forgetfulness. It's supposed to produce happiness— but it's supposed to produce a kind of happiness that makes us self-forgetful, which can produce humility and cooperation and unity and love and all those things, right? Uh, the problem is that in practice and in reality, what we very commonly see is the opposite. Where we would want to see a sense of strength and confidence in interacting with the outside unbelieving culture, what we really see, what we see in our, in our actions and the actions of other Christians is really a sense of inferiority. And it comes out of an insecurity, and 
the, the problem with that is not just that it makes us act funny, but that if you feel insecure and inferior to another group long enough, you will be assimilated by them. If you're walking around with this sort of sense of weight and pressure from the non-believing surrounding culture that presses in on you a sense of insecurity that ultimately creates a sense of inferiority, ultimately you'll give up. You'll run out of energy. You'll run out of resistance. You'll feel overwhelmed, and you will be assimilated. And when it comes to the church, you just get what Paul calls spiritual immaturity. He's like, by now I should be able to call you spiritual, but I can't. I should be able to call it, say, hey, it's time for solid food, but really spiritually you're, you're more like babies that still need milk. You get this kind of immaturity that is very destructive, right? So here's what I want to do this morning. Let's, I want to talk about this whole issue of joy-filled humility, that that's what the gospel is supposed to produce. And then I want to talk about two of the spiritual sicknesses that are universal to humanity that this passage specifically speaks to. And that is our sense of an inferiority as Christians to an outside non-believing culture and our sense of superiority that's often built in us by misapplying the gospel within the church, okay? And it's going to be really interesting. So the, the first thing I think to, to pick up on is— Um, is, is this concept that, that is a holdover from chapter 1 um, called—that um, refers to boasting. Now, we don't usually use that word, right? We don't use the word boasting very much. But essentially, boasting is to take interest and pleasure in expressing your allegiance to or your trust in or whatever, something else. So it's, it's being a fan of something. It's—you um, know what I'm saying? Okay. So in, in verses 25 to 29 in chapter 1, it says this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, meaning Christians, right? Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Okay, why did he do that? Did he just want to be thought foolish and weak? No, it says he did it so that no one may boast before him. Do you see that? That's a picture of humility, right? He's saying, I don't want you bragging about yourself. Therefore, he intentionally chooses weakness. He intentionally chooses what people think is foolishness. And he intentionally does that for the express purpose that we wouldn't take pleasure in ourselves and boast in ourselves. Now, that doesn't end it. If you look at just the next couple of verses, it says this in verses 31, 32. It says this. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay. Now, therefore, it's important to recognize that the point is not for us to not take pleasure in anything. The, God's interest in the gospel is not to reduce the amount of joy or reduce the amount of pleasure or, or reduce the amount of happiness a human being experiences. His goal is to diminish the amount of joy, happiness, and fulfillment we try to take in and of ourselves. And what he's saying is that once you realize that it is because of God that you are in Christ in the first place, 
what you'll realize is how great Christ is. When that happens, you can express your pleasure, joy, and happiness because you'll be oriented towards Jesus, and you take, you'll take pleasure in Him, and that is the way you're supposed to do it. And it'll both create joy and happiness, and it'll also create self-forgetfulness and humility. You'll get everything, rather than an intermittent happiness and a lot of arrogance. Does that make sense? Now, one of the things that this brings up is the whole issue of humility and how humility is attempted. Beca and, and this is important because if you read through the Bible, the Bible is very big on this idea of, of humility. And generally speaking, the way people think about humility tends to lead towards an inauthentic form of humility because we generally think of humility as something done by reduction. Okay? That is, you have—C.S. Lewis said it this way, it's the practice by which clever men believe they're stupid and beautiful women believe they're ugly. Right? It's, it's the idea where um, humility isn't a proper sense of what you actually are. It's in, it's in a sense a devaluing of what you are in order to think small enough of yourself so that you can behave properly. Right? Nowhere in the Bible is that put forward as what humility ought to look like. Um, the Bible does not attempt to put forward a humility of reduction. And the reason for that is it do totally doesn't work. It's false, and it actually leads from inauthentic humility to fake humility. Because what happens is you don't really believe what you're supposed to believe about yourself. So you have to pretend like you believe it, but you really don't. And what it really inserts into the heart isn't humility. It inserts pride and disingenuousness and ultimately hypocrisy which is not generally spiritually helpful, right? So, but, but then the question is, okay, well then how do you get—how does humility happen? And, and the reason that's important is because when we look at what the Apostle Paul says about Christians in this book, he does not insinuate that these people are arrogant because they think too much of themselves in Christ. You see, if—what he says is, if you think of yourself as in Christ— what you are because you belong to Jesus, what he essentially tells the Corinthians is that they don't think nearly enough of themselves. The, the, what they are and who they are is enormously more than they think. The reason why they're arrogant is not that they think too much of themselves, right? The, the reason why they have an issue is because they think too much of themselves from themselves. And that, it, that doesn't make sense. So here's a— example of the difference between a, a humility of reduction and what I want to call a humility of perspective. See, you can take somebody and you can try to make them whole by shrinking them, or you can just take them, make them bigger, and put them in a bigger world. And when you put them in a bigger world, they can be bigger, but they still look smaller. They still get humility out of perspective. So let's call this rock Bob. This is Bob the Rock. Okay, so this is Bob the Rock among his peers. And when you look at Bob in relationship to his peers, he's kind of a big deal. So how do you get humility for Bob the Rock? Well, there's one opportunity, and that is—see, I can use Photoshop too—is you can shrink Bob. But here's the problem with shrinking Bob. Once you shrink Bob, then what do you have to do? Well, see, because now all the other rocks think they're bigger than Bob. Now they think they're a big deal, right? It's an infinite regress. 
right? Now you've got to shrink all the other rocks, or they'll feel proud because they're bigger than Bob. But then they'll be smaller than Bob, so then Bob will think he's a big deal, so then you'll have to shrink Bob again. But now all the rocks will then be bigger than Bob, and they'll think that they're something because Bob is smaller than them. So then you've got to shrink all the other rocks again, but now they're smaller than Bob. And so now what you have to do— you see what I'm saying? It's, a, it's an issue. Okay. So the other thing that you can do is you can actually make Bob substantially bigger, but put Bob in a world that is so much larger that by perspective, he sees his place. Right? And essentially, that is what the gospel is intending to do. What Paul is telling these people, and what he's telling them, he would tell us exactly the same, is here's the issue. The issue is not that you think too little of yourself, the pro- or that you think— it too, the problem is you don't think nearly enough of yourself. The problem is that whatever you do think of yourself, you tend to think of as from yourself. But here's the thing. Once you recognize that you are connected to Christ, and once you realize that what you have, you have in Christ, you can think more than you ever dared hope, but yet be more humble than you ever thought possible. Look, look at a couple of these verses, because I think it's important to recognize what he actually says about a Christian, okay? In verse 7, he basically says that the gospel, Jesus, and, Jesus Christ and him crucified, that message that he's died for our sins, that by faith you can trust in him, he will justify you in your standing before God, he will transform you from the inside out, and he will ultimately redeem you in heaven. Um, and, and through death, if, he says that message is God's secret wisdom, It existed in eternity past, and it was not only destined for God's glory, but for ours. Now think about that. This is the God who says he does not give his glory to another or his praise to idols. This is a God who is very serious about his own glory, and this is a a God who doesn't give his glory to others. But when he includes you and I in redemption because of Jesus, he glorifies himself by redeeming us, and you and I get to participate in his ultimate glorification of self. That is, the gospel is for our glorification, right? And, and of course, that's the little one. When you get down to the end of the passage, he says that if you are a, a believer, that is, God has come in through the Holy Spirit and done the work of regeneration in your heart, he, he's, he, and you believe in Jesus and you belong to him, he said you become what he calls the spiritual man, that is, a converted believer, right? He said if you're that person, then— um, you have the ability to judge everything. That is, that there's a sense in which you see the world totally different than everybody else, and in a way that's actually accurate. And therefore, though other people will judge other things differently than you, you actually have the ability to see the world fundamentally differently in a way that they don't. And that is— the world that sees the rest of the world as fundamentally differently, when they judge you, they don't know what they're talking about. And so you can judge everything and everyone, and you can't be judged by anything or anyone. Now, that sounds a little crazy, I know, and I'll get back to that in just a second. But then he goes on and quotes the Old Testament. He says, listen, I know in the book of Isaiah it said, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Right? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is what? No one, right? But what does he say right after that? But, meaning in this context, instead, we have the mind of Christ. What is he saying there? What he's saying is, is that that rhetorical question for which the answer 
through piety must be no is actually yes. Who has the mind of the Lord? We do. Now think about that. He's saying that because, he said, listen, because the verse is for us. Remember it says, who knows the, the thoughts of a person except their spirit? You know that deal? So basically he's saying is, if I wanted to know you, if we could pull out your mind, like your inner psychology, the inner person that you, you know, if we could pull that out and kind of put it in my head, I would get you, right? And that, that of course, we can't do that. But what he's saying is, that's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit has all that access to the mind of God. And when you believe in Jesus, that only happens because God gives you his Holy Spirit and allows you to see and understand that and understand Christ. When that happens, in a meaningful sense, you share in the mind of God by seeing his best thought, that is Christ. Now, you gotta, you gotta relativize some of these things. That doesn't mean that we have God's whole mind, right? It doesn't mean that we can be judgmental. A couple verses later, a couple of chapters later, he's going to talk about don't judge this and don't judge that before the proper time. And I don't. So he doesn't mean universally we can be judgmental about everything and nobody can say a word to us. That's not what he means. But what he means is in a fundamental way, because we belong to Jesus, we really do see everything differently. And nobody really does have the right to ultimately judge us because we're in Christ. It is a fundamental change in reality, and it comes from the fact that we get to share in God's mind. And if that were crazy enough, then in, in chapter 3, verse 21, 23, this is what he says. This is the end of the section that we're in. He says, So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you're of Christ, and Christ is of God. You see, you see the issue here? He's basically saying, you're arguing about who you are with, whether it's when this— He's like, they're all your. They all belong to you. And not only that, but actually life and death belong to you, and time belongs to you. So why are you arguing about stuff? Why are you fighting like there's limited resources, or you want this one, or they want that one? He's, he says, listen, God possesses and, and owns everything. He has put everything under Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are in all that belongs to Christ. That is, sharing in the mind of God. You cannot be judged and judge all things. That is, you are destined for to share in God's glory from the foundations of the world. You are called into that such that you can legitimately say that everything in all of creation, ultimately in its redeemed form, partially belongs to you because you belong to Christ, including life, death, heaven, hell, and time itself. So from that, we probably can get the idea that Paul does not believe in humility by reduction, does he? That's probably not his tactic, to tell people stuff like that about themselves. But what he, one of the things he realizes is that when people think that any part of that glory, any part of that message, any part of that salvation is rooted in them and is of or from them, they turn from the wider perspective and they glob onto the thing that makes them different than the next guy. Because relative comparison is so much more immediate to us than ultimate comparison in the perspective of God. So let's talk about those two things. Um, 
what happens when we, when we do that? We tend to have these, these issues of inferiority and superiority that come out of this pride. Now, um, the conventional wisdom on this is that when religious people, when, whenever a Christian person is suffering from a sense of inferiority or insecurity or a sense of superiority and arrogance, that it's, it's, the, it's religion that creates that. You probably know this. That's the conventional wisdom out there, that religion creates inferiority because it makes us all, it talks to us, to us all like we're sinners. And yet it, it, it makes us judgmental because then we believe we're right because we believe the right religious thing, and then therefore we become arrogant at the same time. So religion creates insecure and inferior, yet arrogant and superior people. That's, that's, the, that's produced by religion, and therefore they believe it's produced by Christianity. Now, the Bible and the Apostle Paul in this passage sort of begs to differ with that. The, the kind of psychology that makes us insecure and proud people is not universal to religion. It's universal to humanity. It's something that comes out of humanness. And so therefore, are you going to find it among religious people? Yes, you are. Are you going to find it among non-religious people? Yes, you are. You're going to find it among all humans. It's kind of like saying that you found a bunch of addicts at the AA meeting. That, that, yes, you did. Did, are all the addicts at the AA meeting? No, they aren't. Th they're everywhere, but there's one place where they gather to get help, right? So uh, all of humanity is hypocritical. All of humanity is judgmental. All of humanity judges each other. All of humanity is bigoted. All of humanity is prejudiced. All of humanity is mean. All of humanity is— uh, But there's a place where some of us come to get help. And there is one we come to for that help. And so— one of the things we have to recognize is though the conventional wisdom says it's actually this place that produces, or your faith in Jesus that produces the inferiority and the superiority, the insecurity and the arrogance. That's not actually true. It is your sinful humanity, which is shared by all human beings that produces that. And it is the gospel that can treat it. So the first one, that is that the message of the cross can treat feelings of cultural inferiority. I'm not dealing with the whole issue of feeling insecure, but just, but just this idea that you know, you know that the non-believing culture, if you're a believer, disapproves of you. You know that. I mean, everybody knows—I mean, listen, disapproval, everybody knows about. Disapproval and approval is one of the hardest things to conceal and one of the easiest things to communicate. You can show somebody that you disapprove of them by folding your arms or holding your shoulders in a certain way or not facing them when they're—I mean, it's very easy to communicate to people that you don't approve of them or you don't like them or you don't like it, something about them. And we all know from practice, not just from Scripture, that if you believe in Jesus, if you are counted with him, if you are in Christ, you know you, for the rest of your life— you are going to live in a wider culture that does not approve of you. That is a fact. And if you don't do anything about that, that sense of insecurity that comes, that sense of being pushed in on, will eventually become a form of inferiority, and eventually you will be assimilated. And one of the things that we, we have to recognize, and frankly, we have to get a much better backbone about, is that people are not going to just say about us, I generally disapprove of Christianity. 
they're going to make a judgment about Christianity, and they're going to label you and I through any number of pejorative words that their articulate vocabulary allows them to. And they're, gonna, they're just going to say, basically, just on the, knowing that you're Christian, that you're anti-intellectual, that you're hypocritical, that your lifestyle is ugly, that you're too demanding or controlling, that you believe in something that's outdated, that you're hateful, intolerant, or bigoted, that you're simplistic or unnuanced, that you're a traditionalist, or that great slander of all things, that you're regressive. Right? I mean, there's—etc., right? Etc. And listen, this was the same issue the Corinthians were dealing with. Um, and let me, let me try to explain why that is. So hang with me for a minute with a little history, okay? It's very difficult for us in this day and age to look at rhetoric and philosophy and think of that as the absolute center of cultural approval, okay? The idea that the philosophers and the speech teachers um, have all the cultural capital for us is, of course, ridiculous. But if you strip away the technology and you go back a very long time, um, there was no such thing as being better, better educated in a way. You see, until about the middle of the 1800s, it was possible, if you were a generally smart and educated person, to be fully educated, meaning you could know all human knowledge, basically. There just weren't that many works written. You know what I mean? You could just learn learning, and you would be a completely educated person. You'd know, know all of science, all of math, all of history, all of—you could know it all. Because it just wasn't that much to know. And so what separated an educated person from each other was really how well they could communicate that. In a world without microphones, and without TV cameras, and without radios, without anything, it had to do with how much you yourself, in a, in a particular context, could communicate and persuade and move people. And so therefore, rhetoric and philosophy was, was everything because it was the capital of entertainment, business, education, law, and politics. It's everything. And so when they say, Paul, you're not eloquent and persuasive, they're not saying, hey, it would be better for our church if our preachers were a little better. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, because the gospel is philosophically unsophisticated, and because, Paul, you are a terrible speaker, you are culturally humiliating us in a way that can't be necessary. And so therefore, the parallel is not just speaking. The question is the whole issue of cultural approval, what the culture approves of, and the fact that you can't give them what they want. They're never going to approve of you because you'll never be able to give them what they want. This culture has specific values that the gospel doesn't affirm. It actually contradicts. And therefore, these people struggle over the issue of eloquence and rhetoric really is embodied by our desire to be approved of in all kinds of different ways. Um, but we can't we, you, it's one of those deals you just can't get there from here. You, you can't give them what they want. Therefore, you better figure out what you're going to do with that feeling in that sense. And there's three things Paul does in this passage. The first one is that he basically says, do you really want to put all your hope in wisdom that didn't see the wisest thing that ever happened? Or do you want to put your hope in a— a kind of eloquence 
that made people unable to see the most eloquent thing that ever happened in humanity. Or a kind of persuasion that didn't see the most persuasive thing that ever happened. Do you really want to do that? You see, in, in verses, like, I think it's five to seven, Paul basically says, he says, listen, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, and in this case, he means believers, people who have the Spirit. He said, among certain people, they know we, we, the, our message is a message of wisdom. He said, but it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Now, a number of commentators believe rulers of this age is actually not governmental figures, but actually these speakers, these people who taught the schools of philosophy and educated the lawyers, the, the entertainers, the, the politicians, and the businessmen. They were the people that the culture was centered around. They were, in a sense, culturally in Greece, the rulers of the age. And he said, listen, the wisdom we teach is not the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of the rulers of this age. And he says, listen, and here's why you know that. Because if our wisdom and their wisdom was the same, then the rulers of this age would not have crucified Jesus. If they really had ultimate wisdom, they would not have crucified God's wisdom. They wouldn't have done it. They would have thought he was great. They would have ran into Jesus and they would have been like, man, you are so smart. What you say is so—it's not what they did. They killed him, right? Why? And, he, and he's saying because they missed it. So you don't—philosophically, if you're not a Christian, you, you don't have to follow this. But what he's saying is if you're a Christian— that is, you believe that, that Christ is Lord. You have to believe that, therefore, Christ is the wisdom of God. If you believe that, you, you have to believe at some point you've got to part company with the wisdom of the world. You have to believe that. It is entailed. It is logically necessary. And therefore, wh why, why let it intimidate you? You know, that it, you know that the wisdom of the world knows lots of great things. But you know when it comes right down to the bottom of it, the most important thing a person can know, it can't know it. They're incompatible with each other. Therefore, why be intimidated by it? You see what he's saying? The, the, the other thing that he says is essentially— because you, you can see how the Corinthians would say, listen, Paul, Christianity really could be a really good philosophy— I mean, we could make it into a really good philosophy, and you could learn how to speak better, and, you know, we could, like, get at the top of the culture. And essentially, one of the things Paul says here in, in chapter 1 is where he says it. He says, listen, you need to understand that there's something in God's character and the way he does stuff that he's not interested in that. One of the things that—I don't know if this bothers you, but, man, I would really like to be in the majority— I would really love for like 80% of the world to like totally know Jesus as Lord and to be trying to follow that. We still have a screwed up world, but it, we, at least we'd be in the majority, right? And why wouldn't God do that if he comes up with the most ultimately wise thing ever in the history of the world and he has the ability to draw to himself the best and the smartest people? Why doesn't he just do that? Right? And the reason Paul gives in this chapter is that he doesn't want to. Because of this whole issue of glory. He doesn't want people to take pleasure in glory in their own wisdom, their own philosophy, and their own skill. He doesn't want people worshiping the best and the brightest. He wants people to worship him. He wants people to find their joy in the fountain of joy, God. And so God has intentionally made it such that we have people like me preaching in churches, rather than people who are actually smart and eloquent. 
Um, and I'm, listen, I remember like 20, 20 months ago when High Point invited me to come be the pastor. I remember thinking for a little while, you know what? I'm that guy. I'm the guy that's smart enough and eloquent enough and philosophical enough and blah, blah, blah to go to Madison and like r- rip them a new one, you know? And, and, but, and I remember having like this moment where I kind of re- I just realized, and I don't know how God was involved in, in helping me see it, but, you know, like, I, I grew up in a town that doesn't have a light in it, you know? And, like, my dad flunked out of college his first go-around, you know? My mom worked at a bottle cap making factory before she became a public school teacher. You know, like, I, 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 ba- I barely got into college, and I went to, like, a state school that's not very good, you know? I mean, like, I, I'm not that, like, like, it was kind of like, Nick, you're not. You're not that guy. You're actually a big, big dumb animal. But, you know, here we go. Let's, let's give it a go. And I, I remember thinking, but, I, but here's what I, I remember. I remember being in like, it was like a devotionalized praying or whatever. And I remember when I realized that it wasn't demoralizing at all. I remember when I, when I sort of saw that and this whole idea of me being smart enough for Madison, I'm going to go kick some butt in the Capitol. I remember just that, that going away and seeing this so insignificant. And I remember being so thrilled to see that. It was so, I was so happy to think, well, then maybe God could be involved in my life. That would be awesome. Right? Um, and then the second thing is this, or the third actually thing in that second point of the first thing with the second part, is that, is that the reason Paul refused to be eloquent is because you, there are some kinds of eloquence you can't improve on. And to try to do it is to destroy it. Jesus, Jesus crucified, not saying it, the event that happened with the, with the real man, that is the eloquence of God, okay? Not this. I'm telling you about it. But this isn't the eloquence of God. That was the eloquence of God. The fact that God Almighty humiliated himself to become human, to pour out himself to teach sinners, to die as a sacrifice for our sins, to be raised to demonstrate that we could be justified and we could be raised from the dead and we could be part of him, to see this whole thing through history that God shows his strength through weakness, that he shows his wisdom through perceived foolishness. All of that, that is wisdom. That is the eloquence of God. And there's only so much you can do with that. Therefore, Paul said, I didn't come with philosophy. I came with testimony. Right? What's testimony? I just told you what happened. Because the thing that happened is the eloquence of God, not the speech. You see? I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the things that drives me really nuts at sporting events or watching them on TV is when they get some really good singer to sing the national anthem and they like trill it all up. I hate that. I hate that. I love like people who will just let great songs just be great songs and just sing them. Um, and, I mean, just think if I went and got out with one of the best poems, and like, I don't really read poems in my sermon, but I read a poem in my sermon, and instead of just reading the poem, I like put in these like snarky Nick remarks. Would that improve the poem's beauty? 
Probably not, right? Or um, take this, for example. So I could take, take this, like, landscape. And I could say, That's beautiful, isn't it? But you probably don't really get it. So let, I'm going to help you. Let me help you understand, you know, how, how beautiful this is. It's, it's so not, you know what I mean? Is this, does that enhance it? It doesn't really enhance it. It really gets in the way, doesn't it? And there's a sense in which, which Paul was saying, listen, guys, the whole reason why I'm not being eloquent intentionally is the truth doesn't need adornment. And when something is so rawly the truth, when you put adornments on it, it, just, it really makes it funny. It makes it look like it's trying too hard, and it doesn't have its just—it's just—it's straightforward, clear hit. You mess with it, and you can't do that. The cross is meant to just go in straight. Christ died for sinners. Now, if, if you say that, okay, I get that, then you've got this issue— the issue of, well, that still doesn't make anybody humble, does it? Right? You're saying they're right. How does that make them humble? And, and here's, here's why. And that is that the message of the cross can treat feelings of superiority. So it's only 40 minutes left now. Um, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Just get, let's do five minutes on this, okay? Um, there are plenty of proud Christians. Plenty of proud Christians. It's not new. Paul calls these guys unspiritual and worldly, Right? Um, so how do you take somebody who sees what they have in Christ, that they own time, that they share God's mind in some way, small though it will be, but amazing though that is, how do you take somebody like that and say, now be humble, be self-forgetting. You're essentially divine, but let's just put that aside. You know what I mean? Like, how do you do that? And, um, and that becomes really clear in the second half of this passage— because what he says is, when you believe, God is the one who is persuasive. You are not the one who is wise to believe. And that's a really important part of this. I'm going to skip a couple of these slides here. Um, it, when you get out of verse 9, he starts talking about the Spirit. And in, in verse 10 he says, because it says, right, um, no eye has seen nor mind conceived nor uh, or ears heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. That's Jesus, right? So the, the, the wisdom of this world didn't see that. The rule of this world didn't see that, but you saw it, right? So you're fantastic. See, that's, that's not what he says. He says, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit, right? So he's saying, the reason you believe and they didn't is actually not that you're clever. It's not that. It's that God revealed it to you by His Spirit. Verse 12 says, why did this happen? So that we can understand what God has freely given us. So God freely gives you salvation. We're still too thick to get it. So we get the Spirit to reveal it to us so that we can understand what it's about. And he says in verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, for the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You see, there's an issue of understanding. Why does the unspiritual, that is the person who will not be converted and believe in and be regenerate in Christ, why are they different from the spiritual man? What distinguishes those two people from each other? It's not their cleverness. It's not their openness. It's not their authenticity, is it? It's that the Holy Spirit reveals and helps this one understand, and he, and he doesn't with this one. Christians have called this doctrine for a few hundred years the doctrine of election. 
It's God's choice. And so think about it this way. Um, one of the things I hate doing the most is buying cars. I hate buying cars um, because I don't have the tools to make a good buy. I don't—I'm going up against a professional salesperson, right? And I don't know how they're going to psychologically manipulate me. I know they are. I, and I, I don't know how to look over a car to find out if it's in good shape or not. There's—I mean, there's an infinite number of problems there could be from my perspective. Plus, I can't—I can't get in my head if you have— this make with this model for this year with these miles, it should cost this. Who can do that? Oh, that's a 95 Honda Pilot with a 112,000 miles. Well, that should be exactly this much. Like, I, I don't have time to learn all that, right? So I'm at a huge disadvantage, right? But what a lot of us take pleasure in is when we get a good buy, right? We like buying stuff we know how to buy. Oh, I got a great buy on that. The whole idea is I'm clever. I managed a good purchase, because I know a bunch of stuff about this, and yeah, I interacted with this person. They said this, but I did this, and blah, blah, blah. So here's the issue. That's very helpful for buying things. And if you're going to buy cars, please help me. But, but, but when it comes to Jesus, that is, the, that is a just totally destructive mentality. Because when you come to Jesus, the, your cleverness is of absolutely no consequence. God persuades you by means of the Spirit so you can see the— eloquence of the cross and see that that is the true wisdom that can justify, sanctify, and redeem you. That's it. That's it. And you go, and when you see it, you go, oh, of course. You know, it's kind of like, would you like some mint chip ice cream? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not like, well, you, here, here's this really tough decision. You, you got to figure out, oh, maybe I'll believe, maybe I'll—no. It's like, once the Spirit works in you, you just go kind of, well, no doubt. Yeah, I'll, I'm in. I'll do that. Yeah, I see it's, it's an issue, but it's, it's just going to be suffering, but it's amazing. I want it. And so you can't turn around and go, man, was I clever. You see, you are just totally out of the picture. And so therefore, here's how this helps in relationship to humility. Why are you a Christian and your neighbor isn't? You see, God's calling, that's it. And now that, you might say, well, that basically election, that would make pride. No, it doesn't make for pride because your neighbor can be a better person than you, smarter than you, more eloquent than you, more learned than you. He may do more good things than you. He may just be a better human being than you. But you could be a Christian because none of those things matter in terms of how you came. You came because the Spirit persuaded you. That's it. And all you can do is hope and pray that the Spirit would persuade them, and that's all there is to it. And you can't feel superior to them because what you know is that your sinful nature makes you worse than you should otherwise be, and the image of God in them makes them better than their philosophy would normally make them. So even their thinking, even their judgment of the world can be better than yours. You see how that works? So what the result end, ends up being is, he can come forward and say, listen, you have no idea how amazing your life and what you are and what you're going to be and what this world will be like in Christ. You own everything. You own time itself. You can judge all things and nothing can judge you. You can share in the very mind of God and you have been destined since the foundation of the world to share in the glory of the one who is everything. But all of it, the creation of it, the doing of it, even the persuading you into it is from God. Everything. 
And therefore, there is no difference between you and anybody else. There is no step or bit or, or place for you to claim to even distinction between you and somebody else. Even your giftings and skills came from something else. There's no way to differentiate yourself from anybody else, not even just in the church, but even outside the church. Because the, differ, the, the difference comes from the Holy Spirit and election. It doesn't even come from anything to do with us or them. And so therefore, you can take great pleasure and joy in what God has done in Christ. And then you can also see there is no ground for pride. So what that means is, is that if we're a Christian, we both can be pulled out of a sense of looming inferiority by understanding the eloquence of God in the cross, but also we can be healed of the sense of superiority that naturally comes if we don't understand that it was the Spirit who persuades us to believe in the beauty of the message of the cross. And that helps on all kinds of levels. But what it also means is, is that if you're here and you're not, a, you're not a believer in Jesus, that you should look and attend on the possibility that the Holy Spirit is doing that work. When, when Paul says, I want your faith to rest on the power of God, it's so natural for us to read that passage and think, oh, that's a that means a miracle. He's going to do a miracle. That's not what it means. It means the power of God is when the Holy Spirit comes into you and persuades you. And that can feel like a cognitive thing. It can be like, oh, I think that's, that's starting to make sense for me. It can be an emotional thing where you just feel yourself drawn more to the message of, of Christ. And it can be a will thing. You can, your will can start to open up a little bit and say, you know, I could, I'm not thrilled with the idea, but I could see myself moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, that is the power of God that Paul is speaking of this passage. And you, you may be experiencing it. And if you are, then here's my advice. Go for it. Just, just go for it. If it makes sense, believe it. If you feel a draw towards it, go in that direction. If you feel like your will is opening up, be bold. Accept what is being revealed. See the eloquence of God. Believe in true wisdom. See that the one word of wisdom from him was Christ and him crucified for you. So that you could share in his glory, share in his mind, be free from judgment, and own all things because you're in Christ and Christ is in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um